0: All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Frank Turek. So Frank is one of the biggest and best Christian speakers, authors, radio and television hosts, and apologists on planet Earth. He often speaks at churches, schools, and universities and has done public debates with noted atheists like Christopher Hitchens and David Silverman and there are a bunch of other guys. Like, he's done a lot of these debates. But he's also authored books like I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. And he also has a new book that he co-wrote with his son, Zach, called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. And we talk about that a little bit in this episode. He goes into all these different stories from these superhero movies and comics and Hollywood and how that basically points to Christ. He's also the founder and president of the Christian Apologetics Ministry, crossexamine.org. He's the host of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist television show and the host of Cross Examine with Frank Turk radio show. So this was a really, really fun interview. Anytime that I set up an interview to go in a particular way and it doesn't go that way, it's typically a good thing because I basically set it up where it's like, okay, if they're just giving me, Road answers. I'll just work my way through here and it'll be fine. But we kept going off on these different tangents. We didn't get to really interject a lot of time with a lot of his books. So that's why I have the books in the show notes, guys. You can go there through the website. It's all there in the show notes. I'll go over that obviously at the very end, but we talk about manhood in the church. We talk about how he used, he grew up Catholic and then he ended up, you know, uh, while he was in the military becoming an aviator, how he became Protestant, what that looks like, what his debate with Christopher Hitchens was like, how he prepares for these debates. But also we spend a lot of time going into different arguments that atheists and agnostics use and how you can be equipped to deal with those arguments. Again, we equip men to push back darkness here. So it's guys like Frank Turek that will help you with the arguments, with the words to say, but even better, the questions to ask these people to get, to bedrock about their views. I talked about his connection with Robbie Zacharias, and then we got into a epic, epic, what would you say to someone that said segment, but guys, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Frank Turk, welcome to undaunted life of man's podcast.
1: Thanks, Kyle. Great being with you.
0: Hey, we're going to cover a lot of ground and we are going to scrape the edges of that big old brain of yours in today's podcast. But before we get to that, every time I talk to somebody on the podcast that was a veteran, I like to kind of get a little bit of an idea as to why that was, because I grew up around a lot of military, but that wasn't the route that I went. I'm kind of, you know, a little bit ashamed of that, but it's just the, the route that I took. It's the path God had for me. But, you know, before we get into your current profession, which is awesome, you used to be an aviator in the United States Navy, and that that's pretty cool. So what drew you? Uh, to the military and specifically what drew you to being an aviator?
1: Well, the first time I took an airplane ride when I was 15, I said, I want to fly. And so okay. when I got out of high school, the I was always told that the Navy had more planes than the Air Force. And at the time that was true. I don't know if it still is true, but anyway, so I decided to go Naval ROTC and I went to University of Rochester because the head of the ROTC unit there said, if you get good grades here, I can get you a scholarship. So I got good grades my first semester, got a scholarship, and then I uh, graduated there four years later and went into the Navy. I was a navigator on a P3, which is a big, ugly turboprop that went out and hunted submarines uh, and did that from 1984 to 1992. So I got out of the Navy after eight years. And Navy, by the way, stands for Never Again Volunteer Yourself.
0: Never Again Volunteer Yourself. Everybody should know that by now. But it does make it very interesting for some of your presentations. There are some through points. You the story of Mikey Mansoor diving on a grenade. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a U.S. Navy SEAL that has had a, a tremendous impact on, on how we do warfare and how we just think of heroism. Uh, so we'll certainly get into that. But I hate asking broad questions, but for those in our audience that don't know kind of who you are and what you do in the broadest way possible, so my audience can get a sense of who you are. How did you become a Protestant? Because my understanding is that you grew up Catholic. If I'm incorrect on that, please let me know. But how did you become a Protestant? And then I guess what drew you to the world of Christian apologetics? Because there's a lot of people that just stop at Protestant and they don't go any further. So give us the story.
1: Right. Yeah. Good question. Well, I was brought up in New Jersey, which means by law, I had to be Catholic. Of course. Catholic or Jewish, one of the two. And uh, But when I went through Catholic high school, I just really never knew who Jesus was. And when I was in the Navy and flight school, I ran into the son of a Methodist minister, and I always believed in God. I knew there had to be a first cause, right? This stuff just doesn't happen, right? There was a creation, there's gotta be a creator out there. I just didn't know who Jesus was. And I had so many questions for this guy about Christianity that he finally said, look, you just need to get Josh McDowell books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Than a Carpenter. These are books that give evidence that Christianity is true. So I got those books, and when I got out of the Navy in 1992, I wound up running into Norman Geisler, mm-hmm. who at the time was sort of what we might call the Michael Jordan of apologetics, or maybe I'll update that, the Tom Brady of apologetics, right? The uh, Steph Curry of apologetics, the Tiger Woods, well, now it's probably somebody right. else other than Tiger. You get the right. idea. The, the top guy in the field on evidence for the faith. And he was starting a seminary here in Charlotte, North Carolina. So my wife and I and our three sons, who were age five and under at the time, moved to Charlotte to attend this seminary back in 1993. And uh, then he, the Dr. Geisha and I began writing together. We ran a couple, wrote a couple of books. One's called Legislating Morality, and the other is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And then I started a ministry in 2006 called crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. And it's devoted to going mostly to college campuses and high schools to present evidence that Christianity is true. From our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So I came to faith through evidence, and that's why I was interested in it uh, once I really understood who Jesus was.
0: Yeah, and we're going to spend a whole lot more time on that sidebar. You can use Michael Jordan as the example forever, because that is the goat of all goats. That doesn't need to be updated. That doesn't need to be changed. (laughs) MJ for life. But one thing that I want to talk about, you and I were talking about this off air. I talked about this with John Cooper, who's a mutual friend of ours and Mm -hmm. uh, Lisa Childers. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that there's a different argument and there's a different fight than what maybe we saw 10 or 15 years ago. The fight used to be seemingly, and you know, you can give me your perspective, between atheists and Christians, between this worldview versus that worldview. But now, Frank, I feel like the fight is between Bible-believing Christians and woke Christians right? Mm -hmm. And so you could call Mm -hmm. that left, right. You could call that liberal conservative or progressive Mm -hmm. conservative. I feel like that's the fight because we can't fight a battle against atheism. If you look at it that way, if we have a divided front, if we have people Mm -hmm. that don't fundamentally believe the same things. Now, John and Elisa tended to agree with me on that particular Mm -hmm. topic because I feel like that is the battle now. Do do you feel the same way? Are you running into that?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think the battle continues on all fronts. I think atheism is growing in the sense that uh, there are people, maybe it's not best to be known as atheism, but about a third of the people out there are what we call nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not n u n s obviously. <laughs> uh, people that have no religious affiliation at all. So yes, there are a- there are adamant atheists out there that are claiming all religion is evil and all these these claims they make. And all religion is false, uh, but then there are other people, as you brought up, up, up point out, who uh, are might maybe traditionally have been what we call Christians, but now have drifted left in their ideology and their theology. And look, I just I just have a personal policy: if somebody claims to be a Christian and disagrees with Jesus, I say, why are you, claim, why are you claiming to be a Christian? And you're disagreeing with Jesus. That doesn't appear to make any sense to me. By definition, if you're a Christian, you agree with Jesus. Right. Right. That's the whole point. But to say, no, you know, I don't agree with Jesus on this, that or the other. I don't agree with his apostles. Stop calling yourself Christians because you're not.
0: I think that's where we've gotten to, because I had Ryan Burge on the show. We talked about the nuns of America and the rise of the nuns. Yeah. And one of the through points, he, d- he didn't really agree with me on this, and he's definitely more left of center uh, in terms of how he does things. And that does kind of tinge the work that he's done is that the, these squishy Christians. So like I was born in Oklahoma. So mm-hmm. by dint of being born on this red clay, I'm a Protestant Christian, right? Even right, though right. there was no requirements on me, there was no expectations on belief or faith or any of those mm-hmm. types of things. It was just because I was born here. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are Christians because of something like that, or they're Christians right. because, you know, they they got swept up in the emotion at an event and and mm-hmm. maybe raised their hand or something like that. But then their life after that didn't show any fruit. And now we're kind of getting into these arguments it's about Calvinism and, and, you know, mm-hmm. it, are we seeing the fruits? Because I got to tell you, the more I look into Calvinism, the, the less I feel saved, depending upon the hour, just because it's like, oh my gosh, is my fruit sweet enough? Is it big enough? Is it good enough? But do you feel like that's part of the reason that we're seeing is we have this rise of this, you know, emotional movement, this raise yeah, your hand and say a prayer movement. Does that aid in this? Yeah.
1: Yeah. People think that if they just get the magic of <sighs> that one little moment. Guys, that, I didn't oh, add that I felt for, the record, for the record. For the record, I
0: did not add that in there. He's got his own sound effects. That is the That's first right. time. My
1: own sound effects, man. If I say something good, you're going to get around. I'm going to get a round of applause. That's all I'm saying. That's okay? beautiful. Keep going. Yeah. So no, 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 no. Uh, Christianity is not about a feeling. Christianity is about trusting in what you have good evidence to believe is true. So you trust in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, died for you. And by trusting in him, you're not only forgiven, you're given his righteousness. But you're trusting in an historical event and a person. You're trusting in the person that came to earth, added humanity to his deity, lived a perfect life, and then died and rose again to vindicate his claim to be God. That's what you're doing. And Paul says in... Romans chapter 10 he says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus has been risen from the dead you will be saved. That's how you get your sins forgiven. You're trusting in an historical person who came to earth, died and rose again. That's that's it's it's a fact you can check out. It's just not some mystical event. All right? It's not that. It's 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 historical. You can look into it.
0: So, uh two things. Number 1, I immediately need to get sound effects for my own podcast. You do. Why I don't know what I, you're
1: doing, man. This is a subpar podcast. If you don't have sound effects, in fact, it could be scary if work. you get sound effects.
0: Frank, I just need to apologize for not being prepared enough for the grandeur of what you're already given to me in our first <laughs> 10 minutes here. But I, I do want to get to this. So, and people are probably going to get tired of me bringing this up and, and going this route, but look, talking about reformed folks or Calvinist folks, and I don't mm-hmm. know where you kind of stand on all that. So you can feel free. I'm to not po-
1: predestined to be Calvinist. I'm <laughs> just telling you. Okay. Well, okay. what, my
0: question is, is when I've interacted with people that are Calvinist or reformed, I will say, Hey, in one sentence, can you tell me how someone can be saved? And I asked the guy that question and I'm going to have mm-hmm. him on the show later. So I don't want to put him on blast, but I asked him that question and he launched it. If I'm lying, I'm dying. He launched into a 10 minute explanation of systematic theology based on, you know, basically the understandings of Christianity by a guy in the 1500s named John Calvin. And I was like, dude, you're kind of playing into my point here to where a lot of people are very, very confused about whether or not they can actually be saved. And some of that's good because it's like, if you're not actually a Christian, if you don't have true faith, it's good to kind of get to bedrock. But for me, I was saved, if you can use the term now, uh, as a 10th grader, because a, a guest preacher came and spoke on a Sunday night uh, uh, you know, at my church. And he was talking about, you know, the rising amount of volcanoes and earthquakes, and you better get in now because, well, you know, while the getting's good. And I, I stood up and r- raised my hand and I was like, okay, let's get after it. But then you hear people like John MacArthur, who I love, or Vody Bacum, who I love saying how, like, you can't get saved that way just by raising your hand and, and saying a prayer. And I'm like, oh no, did I do it wrong? Is that, is that making sense?
1: Well, uh, I would ask them, how do you get saved then? Because according to Paul, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus has risen from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what Romans ten nine 9 says. Uh, so uh, I'm trying to figure out what they would mean if they say, well, that's not how you get saved. Well, how do you get saved then? What is, what is the, the method by which you need to go through or the claim you need to go through. Let me make sure I quote the verse properly. Here's what it says. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with for with your heart you it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So I, I don't I don't understand why it's so complicated. Now, they may try and say and I'm not here to debate John MacArthur and Vody Bakum. I just don't think Calvinism's true. Okay? <laughs> Uh, and I can I can give you two minutes on it if you want to.
0: Hey, well, go know, ahead and launch into the two minutes and then, okay. and then we'll move on to other stuff as well. I'd like to hear yeah. your perspective.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, um, I think that there is election, but it's not election without our free will. Let me put it this way. Uh, what people think is that if God knows what's going to happen, he's causing it to happen and we don't have free will. That's not the case. You can know something's going to happen and not cause it. Like, for example, I'll just give you an illustration. Mm. Uh, suppose a young woman has a new baby. She brings the baby home from the hospital. She puts the baby down for a nap or for or, or for the night. She knows at some point during the night that baby's going to want to wake up and uh, and get fed, right? Mm-hmm. She knows that. But because her knowing that, does that mean she's causing the baby to wake up? No, knowledge does not imply causation. You can know something's going to happen with certainty, and that doesn't mean you're causing it. You can know tomorrow the sun's going to rise in the east. You can know that, but you're not causing it to rise in the east. That's a fallacy in logic. And so people tend to think that if God knows all things, that we don't have free will. No, he knows what we're going to freely do, but he's not causing us to do it. And so when the, the election part of it is this. When God elected to create this universe, he elected the outcome. By definition, since he knows all things, he knows that whatever universe he creates, he knows the outcome. He knows you're going to believe and say someone like Richard Dawkins, Mm -hmm. probably the world's most famous atheist, would not believe. But he's not causing you to believe and he's not causing Richard Dawkins to not believe. He is just allowing people to freely make their choices. Now, you could ask the question, well, why did God create a universe where he knew people would go to hell? Well, it's logically possible that God could create a universe where everyone would believe, but it might not be actually achievable with free creatures. Because by definition, if people are free, God can't force them to believe one way or the other because then they wouldn't be free. So what he does is he creates a universe where the maximum number of people freely come to know him. And he allows people to make their own choices. And God can still get his will done even through people who don't obey him. Like, for example, Richard Dawkins, I just mentioned, writes a book called The God Delusion. Christian picks it up, reads it, and goes, oh, I hadn't heard that argument before. I guess I got to get some more answers. By reading a book written by an atheist, a Christian's getting closer to God, right? So God can get his will done even through People who are not trusting in him. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And we're all crooked sticks, right? Yeah. So yes, God predestines us, but yes, we're also free. So we're chosen but free. In fact, my co-author, Dr. Norman Geiser, wrote a book. Here it is for those watching the uh for those watching the um the YouTube version of this, chosen but free. Mm-hmm. Yes we are chosen, but yes we're also free. And to say that we don't have freedom that God does everything and we don't have any free choice, you know the problem with that, Kyle what's that? It makes God the author of evil.
0: yeah that's and, the problem well, and that's that's the pushback that that we get and I guess here's the thing so that we don't go too too often to, to yeah. the weeds on theology. I really appreciate you giving me your perspective on that. Part mm-hmm. of it is these theological debates are fun. That they're yeah. good to do, kind of inside the, the church. But I got to yeah. tell you, I, I listened to a debate between um, uh, William Lane Craig and Doctor James White, and I yeah. got to tell you, they and they were debating Molinism. And about right. halfway through, Frank, I didn't even know what the definition of Molinism was. And I'm like, these guys are just going back and forth, and you know, making one intellectually snobby point after another, and both of them being rather smug. And I was like, who's gaining value? out of these two brainiacs arguing about this. And and again, I'm not saying that these things aren't important. What I'm saying is like, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody and you pull out this tome of systematic theology and try to beat them over the head with it, it's going to maybe be a little bit too complicated. But I feel like we're getting into some waters that aren't necessarily the point for today. One of the main things I wanted to talk to you about is about manhood in the church just in general. Mm -hmm. So at this Mm -hmm. ministry, we equip men to push back darkness. Okay. One of the reasons that we do that is because their pastors are not doing so. Their pastors don't have the men in mind when they're creating their their Mm -hmm. sermon content. The the person who's singing the songs isn't concerned about the men in the crowd whenever they're picking out the songs with particular lyrics or singing at a particular key. I don't really know much about music. Hopefully key is the right word, but it's a concern for me. And the reason why we started what we're doing is because around the time I was learning to become a man, I was learning to become a Christian. And I felt like the manly men were outside the church doing man stuff and all the godly men were inside the church doing godly stuff and that there was no crossover. Now, We could argue whether or not that was actually true, but that was my paradigm. And that's the paradigm of a lot of people. I've talked to hundreds of men that agree with that. Hundreds of men who hear their pastor talk about Lamb of God, Lamb of God, grace, 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 never talk about Lion of Judah, never talk about truth. They don't want to touch Jesus going in and doing premeditated violence on people in the temple. And I feel like a lot of men are being pushed away and the church is basically communicating to these men. We're not doing this for you. This is not for you. And the men are like, great, I'll go mess around in the garage. I'll hit the golf course. You know, I'll hit the the shooting range. I'll do something else because you don't want me here. What is your read on modern, modern Christianity and specifically how it, you know, rejects or accepts manhood and masculinity?
1: Well, I think you're right. The the church has been made for women, basically. It is much more fall in love with Jesus type stuff. And men are going, fall in love with Jesus. What the heck does that even yeah, mean? It just sounds right? weird. Yeah, yeah, it sounds weird. It's why the church is 65 to maybe 70% women because it does not appeal to men. And I think we've bought into the idea that Jesus is some kind of Barney figure. You know, he's just like, can't we all get along, boys and girls? When this is the guy that came and said, Don't don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to divide divide people. You're going to have mother divided from daughter, father from son, right? This is what my name is going to do. Now, that doesn't mean that God wants us to be divided. He's simply saying that my ministry and the person who I am is going to create division. And I always tell people, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter two, John chapter eight, or Matthew chapter 23. For example, John chapter two, what does Jesus do? You just referred to it. He makes a whip and he goes and he jacks people up in the mm-hmm. temple. What sweet and gentle Jesus did this? Yes. Right. And then in John chapter eight, he's having an argument with the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the politicians of Jesus's day. They were On the Sanhedrin, some of them were, and the Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council to to whom Rome delegated much of the day-to-day lawmaking authority to. So these were the people that Jesus went after. They were the religious politicians. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes. Absolutely. And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact- in John chapter eight, he's arguing with these religious politicians, and right in the middle of the congregation, or right in the middle of the conversation with him, he says, "Your father is the devil." Jesus, right. you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. I mean, come on. Can you imagine having an argument with somebody and you stop right in the middle and you go, "Your father is the devil"? Never try that with a sibling, by the way. Right. Anyway. So Jesus is tough. And then in Matthew 23, he's going after these same Pharisees, these same politicians. And what does he say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Mm -hmm. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? And you go, what? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, He was not Mr. Rogers, right? He didn't go around saying, this sermon brought to you by the letter E. No, Jesus (laughs) was tough. In fact, why did they kill him? Two reasons. Number one, he claimed to be God, Mm -hmm. which was blasphemy to the Jews and sedition to the Romans. If you want the two power figures to come after you, tell them you're God, because that's going to get you Stoned by the Jews and executed by the Romans because who was God? Well, the emperor was God, and the Godheads of Rome were, or the God figures of Rome, the gods of Rome were supposed to be gods, not some guy walking around uh, like Jesus. So he was killed because he claimed to be God. And number two, he spoke truth to power, particularly to somebody like Caiaphas, Mm. who knew that he would be out of a job if Jesus succeeded. In fact, Caiaphas, I think, Kyle, had good evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus had, had raised Lazarus from the dead. Right. And what does he say right after he raises Lazarus from the dead? What does Caiaphas say? He says, it's better that one innocent man die than the whole nation perish. In other words, Caiaphas said, it's better, off, better for us to murder this guy than us to lose our privileged position here at the temple. So Jesus was tough. Don't buy into this wimpified Mm 60s hippie version of Jesus. Jesus was a tough guy. That's why he was killed.
0: Yeah, he was a rough and tumble Middle Eastern mm-hmm. Jew. He wasn't, he didn't look like a Danish guy. He didn't look like me. He looked a whole lot closer to Osama bin Laden to, than he did to either one of us. And mm-hmm. the, the thing about it is, is I think it's it's right to look at Jesus appropriately. And I think that's one of the things the modern church has done a really, really bad job of. And I don't just mean in the artwork or in the expression in the music, which I have a massive, massive issue with the music. But it's like, as a man, you don't understand the fullness of Christ unless you understand grace and truth. And in this culture, mm-hmm. we, we think of things as 50-50 like, oh, he's 50% grace and 50% truth. That makes 100% Jesus. Nope. He was 100% grace, 100% truth in order to be 100% Jesus. He was just as much lion of Judah. That's why he's over my shoulder as he was lamb of God. And so part, this is one of the things that I would say, and I want to get your opinion on this. One of the ways that I think that pastors can change. And one of the ways that I think men like me can help change the really Christendom in the West is to go to their pastors and and talk to them about some of their concerns about the church not being man-friendly enough and to tell Mm -hmm. their pastors, guess what? If you start making this church man-friendly, if you start equipping us to push back darkness, if you start talking about, you know, cultural topics that people don't like to touch like abortion or LGBTQ issues or Black Lives Matter or Marxism or name a thing, I've got your back. I know some slings Mm -hmm. and arrows are going to come your way, Mm -hmm. but guess what? Mm -hmm. I've got my, I got your back. And guess what? There's a dozen dudes in the lobby that have meetings set up with you after, after mine. And they're all going to tell you the exact same thing. Pastor, we've got your back. Let's do this. Like let's actually physically push back darkness. Let's storm the gates of hell as much as we possibly can. I can.
1: I think one of the reasons that pastors are afraid to do that, Kyle, is because we bought into the, Wrong idea that the church is for unbelievers. And that's why pastors think, oh, I can't speak on controversial issues because I might offend unbelievers and then they won't become Christians. Well, The church was never designed to be for unbelievers. I mean, we welcome unbelievers, don't get me wrong, but we don't preach to the lowest common denominator, which are unbelievers. We should be equipping Christians to become disciples. And that means you preach the truth regardless of who's in the audience. That's why you're there. You're not there to pamper the culture. You're there to transform the culture. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is we have too many people out there that are being... Influenced more by the culture than we are influencing the culture. That's the problem. Oh, they think, they also think, oh, you know, if I preach on these hard issues, we're going to lose people. You know what? You are. Right. You're going to lose people, but you're going to gain a whole bunch more who are going to be fired up and true disciples. That's, you, you can look at the stats for that. You're, you're going to initially lose some people, but they're chaff anyway. They're not true Christians anyway. They don't want to know the truth. They want the, they, They want to be cultural Christians. You want the people in there who want to be disciples, who are going to go to battle for truth and do it in a gracious way.
0: Right. Let's talk about that phrase you use or, or that term you use. True disciples. Okay, let's talk about yeah. true disciples because that's one thing. I attended one of the largest mega churches in America, it was the largest mega church in America for over 10 years. That's Life Church here in Edmond uh, or in Oklahoma City, Edmond. That's that's Craig Rochelle. Yeah, Craig they, Rochelle is yeah, his name. Yeah, they yeah. were like one of the first churches to do multi site and they they invented yeah. church online and all that. They've done some great things. The YouVersion Bible app, all of this. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But again, they they do the the highly production, you know, easy skittles church, like come in, listen to your concert, listen to your TED talk with a few Bible verses sprinkled on top, and mm. then we're going to make you raise your hand now, and raise your hand now, accept Jesus now. And then you raise your hand and they count up the hands and then they put it in their annual report every year about how many tens of thousands of people got saved. But one thing the church has done poorly and I've talked about this publicly, there's no such thing as discipleship at that mm. church. They don't really worry about making true disciples. And again, I attended for over 12 years. I did leadership, I did volunteerism. I ran some of the men's stuff that they were doing there. They basically pawned off the discipleship to what they call life groups, which are basically, you know, these home groups and things like that. And there's been some issues with the home groups. That's not what we're here to talk about today, but there's no discipleship from, Mm. from any of the folks that are in leadership. You might get a book from a pastor. You might say, you know, Hey, you might get a meeting here or there, but I find that to be a major, major issue with these enormous churches is it's impossible to be known If something were to happen to you or happen to your family, the church has the resources to come around you, but they don't have the knowledge to really even come around you. And again, I'm painting with such a broad brush here and a lot of life churchers listen to this and I appreciate you guys, but gosh, it concerns me that people are quote unquote getting saved that actually aren't that, you know, they're checking a box on, on a welcome card, but they're not actually growing in the faith at all. Do you see that? Cause I know you get invited to speak at some of these enormous churches. So you don't want to, you know, piss in the pool that you're, you know, using to make your business, but it's very concerning to me, Frank.
1: Yeah, it is concerning. It's a hard problem. It's not an easy problem, uh, because once you get, you know, more than, say, two or 300, you can't know everybody, right? and you can't really be involved in their lives as a pastor. And then you've got to start delegating to other people, kind of like Moses did in in Exodus. You know, Mm -hmm. God told him to get some judges around him, get some elders around him to, to teach the people. But remember, the goal of the church is to equip the saints to do ministry. And in order to equip the saints to do ministry, you have to make those saints disciples. Right. Right. Remember, Jesus said, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. He didn't say make believers. And uh, so it is a hard problem. I don't I don't have an answer. I don't have a way. Well, here's how you do it. You know, Um, if you're going to use life groups, you better make sure those life group leaders are trained and they are the people that can disciple the people in a small group environment. But unfortunately, even that's hard to do. How do you train people? How do you get people to know what the pastor knows without them going to seminary and without them being uh, uh, folks that have time to study all this. It's a really hard problem. Right. Uh, and in fact, early churches, as you know, were house churches for a reason. Well, first of all, they'd, they'd, they'd be persecuted if they came out in public. Right. But secondly, in a house church, you can get to know everybody and you can live life and really Disciple one another. It is admittedly hard to do, and I don't know much about Craig. I know they have done some good things, as you mentioned. I haven't watched many of his sermons, I and mean, he's obviously a good speaker. But if it doesn't go deeper than any Sunday morning, they're not really making disciples, and it right. is a hard problem. Well, it Frank, really is.
0: And, and again, I was under his leadership, and I guess two yeah. you could say, for for I think it was twelve years, that I attended that church. Uh-huh. And again, like I'm, I'm being critical about someone that's not here to defend themselves, so I know what's inherently yeah. wrong with that. But you know, it just kind of is what it is. Part of the issue is um, he's been talked about before, like, why don't you go deeper? Why don't you exegete the scriptures? Why don't yeah, you yeah. like really go a whole lot farther? Why don't, why does it seem like you build this four week series and then back into the scripture, you know, you know, to make your other life points that you're wanting to make. And he said this kind of piffy comment that gets a lot of claps from the seals in the crowd, which is basically as soon as y'all get the easy stuff, I'll get into the deep stuff, which is a way of saying, I'm never going to get into yeah, the deep stuff, yeah. right? That's kind of the admit the admission there. But I guess the problem is, is it's the church growth model, which is modeled off of being a startup. So when you're a startup, everything you do is about growth, right? And then you're trying to package it to sell it and all that kind of stuff, but everything is about growth. And anything that stunts growth is something that you will avoid and something that you Mm. will not deal with. Mm. And so Mm. if you're running this church model where it's like, okay, we're going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And then we're going to you know, plant another another campus, otherwise known as you know planting another franchise. It's just another Arby's or just another Burger King or something like that. You're just basically creating this model where everything has this cult of personality under one person. Could be Craig, yeah. could be you know, name another multi-site church, and then it just splinters off from there. If something happens to that main guy, we don't know what happens to the church. I was talking to church leadership, and if Craig got you know hit by a bus or attacked by you know a pack of seagulls and got carried off and died they didn't have a plan for what would happen to all of these churches. They, they wouldn't be able to operate autonomously. And so I, I kind of want to get off that because, you know, it, it's, it's just kind of one of my own bugaboos. It is a concern that I have for the future. And I do want to kind of move right now, Frank, into some other areas. And we're just not going to be able to get really into all your books. I'm going to put those in the show notes, guys. You know, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And, you know, uh, stealing from God in your new book, Hollywood Heroes, these books are all fantastic. We're not going to give enough attention to those today. You guys have to go and buy them. They're in the show notes. Don't be a loser. Buy them, read them, listen to them, whatever you got to do. I do want to get into your debate style though, Um, Mm -hmm. because that is something that I feel like is very important as a Christian apologist. There are Christian apologists that are great at retrieving facts when they're speaking in front of a, a nice crowd of nice, polite people at a church. And then there's those that are dogs, that they're going to get out there in a debate with someone that hates them and a crowd that's hostile and they get after it. And you yourself did two public debates with one of the, you know, four uh, so-called horsemen of new atheism, Christopher Hitchens. And so I guess my question for you is, is you're obviously a bombastic guy. You're, you're a smart guy. You're a funny guy, but how do you go about preparing for a debate like that with, with somebody that Christopher Hitchens, who I don't seem to be, I don't see him as a very impressive person. I feel like his accent is why most people thought he was super duper smart. Like just to be honest personally, but you Mm -hmm. know, how do you think those debates went with Christopher Hitchens? You know, what was kind of the critical reception and how do you prepare for one of those?
1: Yeah, well, the way you prepare for them is you read what the guy wrote, and he had a book called uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. So I read his book, and uh, that was my first debate ever, other than the several debates I've had with my wife, and I never win any of those. Uh, But (laughs) you know, the first public debate was with Christopher Hitchens. You might as well go big or stay home, right? So um, that was in Richmond back in 2008. Then I debated him again in 2009. I mean, I think they went Fine. You know, I'll let others decide how, uh, how they went. You can go to our YouTube channel, look for the cross examined YouTube channel. You can see both those debates. Um, I will say this, and, and I think most people would agree with this, as you just pointed out, Hitchens is a great He's great at rhetoric because he had the British accent, right? He sounded right. more brilliant than he was with the British accent. And he was a writer. He was a journalist. So he was really good at rhetoric. So if you listen to a debate with Hitchens or watch a debate with Hitchens, you're going to go, I like this guy. And I liked him. I, I mean, I liked him personally. But if you read a debate with Hitchens, if you read the transcript, you're going to go, what the heck is this guy talking about? Exactly. It has nothing to do with the topic. In fact, the first debate we had was, does God exist? And his opening statement had to do with what a bad person Mother Teresa was. And, and, and you're going, what what does this have to do with what Mother Teresa could have been the best or worst person in history? But what does this have to do with whether or not God exists? Right. You know, I mean, he was just getting up there and basically saying he didn't like what Christians had done in history, which to which I responded. You know, Christopher, you're right. A lot of Christians have done a lot of evil in history in history. But if there is no god, none of that was evil because if there's no standard of good, there's no standard of evil and if there's no standard of evil then what are you complaining about? Right. You know, you have to steal from god in order to argue against him. You have to steal a standard of good, which is god's nature, to say that christians have done evil. So, if christians have done evil, god exists. If 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 god doesn't exist, they haven't done evil because there's no such thing as good or evil. And I- so you can watch the debates for yourself, but you got to you got to read a lot. You got to be ready. You got to anticipate what the, what he's going to say. That's how I get ready for debates. And I've debated about I've had about 10 public debates, a couple with Michael Shermer. Mm-hmm. He's another famous skeptic or yeah, atheist jump. and probably uh, several others with maybe people you haven't heard of.
0: Well, guys, in the in the show notes, we'll have a link to the Cross Examine YouTube mm-hmm. page, so you guys can go and mm-hmm. check those out. But it, it kind of reminds me when I listen to some of those b- debates, Frank. It kind of reminds me of Thank You for Smoking, when the lead character in that movie was talking to his son, and this guy is like a lobbyist for Big Tobacco, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, he's talking about a debate, and he's trying to explain to his son, you know, Hey, Dad, you didn't answer the question that that lady journalist asked you. I believe was the scene, and he goes, "Well, I'm answering the question that I want to answer." That's not, right, not yeah. their question. And so yeah. when you hear these people like that seem smart, like a Hitchens or a Dawkins mm-hmm. or, a, you know, name another, you know, famous mm-hmm. atheist, they're not actually answering the question and they're not going to bedrock. But there was an interesting thing that happened recently on Justin Brierly's show over in the UK. It was the big conversation and it was between Richard Dawkins and Francis, uh, I, Collins. Francis Collins. Exactly. Yeah. And there was an interesting admission there to mm-hmm. where Dawkins basically admitted that the fine-tuning of the universe is perhaps the only road to him to belief in as some sort of a creator. Maybe that would lead yeah, him to yeah. deism or, or to something like it that. But
1: said the same thing. That was the best argument the theist had, yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Because many right. atheists that are intellectually consistent and intellectually honest, which seemingly there's not many of those, they will actually admit that the fine-tuning of our universe is probably the best argument for a creator God. Is that Is that the best argument that we can give to atheists as to why belief in God is a reasonable thing?
1: Well, there's three that I give. One is the argument from the beginning of the universe, known as the cosmological argument. The Mm -hmm. second is the argument from design, known as the teleological argument, and that that deals with the fine tuning of the universe and also the design we find in living things, the genetic code, for example. Mm -hmm. And the third is the moral argument, because if there's no God, nothing's ultimately right or wrong. Everything's just a matter of opinion. But we all know, say, the Nazis were wrong, okay? Well, if the Nazis are wrong, God must exist, why? Because there has to be a standard beyond us and the Nazis. That's God's nature that says, this is the standard of righteousness and anyone that deviates from that would be wrong or would be evil. So those three arguments, The cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments show that God exists. And I always start with the cosmological. Why? Because if the universe had a beginning, if space, matter, and time had a beginning, which even atheists are admitting, then whatever created space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, and also intelligent to have a mind to create, so from one argument, Kyle, you get six attributes mm-hmm. for what appears to be God—a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause. Now, at this point, you don't know that you don't know if this is Jesus or Allah or some other theistic mm-hmm. God, right, or deistic God, as Richard Dawkins would say, a God who just creates the universe and then leaves it. But we've got six arguments from one argument. The argument you're talking about is the fine tuning of the universe. And let me just give you two quick points on this. Stephen Hawking, who was probably the most famous atheist uh, physicist until he died about five years ago, put it this way with regard to the expansion of the universe. He said, if the expansion of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million, a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. In other words, if the expansion rate was that infinitesimally different from the very beginning, none of us would be here. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't make any evolutionary argument or explanation for this. You can't say, well, the expansion rate evolved to this point by chance after a certain period of time. Why? Because this is the initial expansion rate. This happened at the very beginning of the universe. It was just where it needed to be. Seems to me the same being that created space, matter, and time is the same being that fine-tuned the expansion rate to be precisely what it needed to be at the very beginning. Anything different, none of us would be here. One other point that I find very intriguing, and there's about a dozen of these aspects about our universe that if you change any one of them, none of us are, none of us would be here. There'd be no universe. If the, if the strong nuclear force was different by one part in 10 to the 40th power uh, compared to the gravitational force. If the gravitational force was different from the strong nuclear force, by that one in 10 to the 40th power, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. Now, what's one in 10 to the 40th power? That's one part in one with 40 zeros following it. You say, well, Frank, I can't get my head around that number. Let me just give you a brief illustration to show you the the precision of this number. Take the entire North American continent and pile dimes on it all the way to the moon. That's over 200,000 miles, right? And do that on a billion other North American continents, dimes all the way to the moon. Mark one dime in all those piles, red, mix it all in to all those piles, then blindfold your friend, throw them in that one huge pile and tell them to pick one dime at random. It's the the. Chance that he would pick the one red dime is one chance in 10 to the 40th power. What are the odds you think he's going to pick that? He's not, right? Forget about it. Never going to happen because uh, there are too many dimes that aren't marked. There's only one that is. That's one in 10 to the 40th precision, which means that if if, if the ratio between the gravitational force and the strong force were different by that infinitesimal amount, we wouldn't be here. So there's only two explanations for why that value is where it is. It was designed to be there or it wasn't. I always ask people, what's more reasonable?
0: Right. And in the if it wasn't part, you're also positing that something came from nothing, that yes. all things came mm-hmm. from nothing. And you do a great job of in, you know, in all your presentations and in your mm-hmm. books of really going at that. And that's one thing I, I guess I like about your approach is that you you try to get people to bedrock. And that's what I mm-hmm. feel like a lot of debates Christians or conservatives or whoever, they, they're too nice with the other people and they don't mm-hmm. hold their feet to the fire. So that's why I like your explanation. Eric Metaxas just wrote a book called Is Atheism Dead? And like a yep. third of the book deals with some of those numbers in terms right. of the fine tuning of the universe, because there is not a logical explanation. And again, these people will say that we're just, you know, this random coalition of atoms that kind of came together. So why would we trust our brain impulses to begin with? And yet they're making these appeals to logic and other types of argumentation. I did want to have you engage a little bit with this Because again, here at Undaunted Life in order to equip men to push back darkness we need to make sure that we have some of our apologetics knowledge ready to go uh, whenever we're talking with people whether it's at the water cooler or in a debate of ourselves and so there's a lot of very popular arguments I wrote down like 10 of them but we'll just go through two or three or so but I guess the the big one and you've alluded to it a little bit but I want to be more explicit is the problem of evil you know why do bad things happen to good people Mm -hmm. so just just kind of give us a 30,000 foot flyover why do you know how you answer that as a Christian apologist well
1: it doesn't disprove God, it actually shows God does exist. You say, how so? Because evil presupposes good and good presupposes God. You see, evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil exists only as a privation or a lack in a good thing. For example, evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you got a better body, right? What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? You got nothing, right? It doesn't exist on its own. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you got a better car. What happens if you take all the car out of the rust? No car. You got a pinto. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Okay. So evil only exists as a lack in a good thing. So if evil exists, then good exists. But for good to exist, God has to exist. Otherwise, it's just your opinion because the standard of good is God's nature. So evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it can't disprove God because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good. And there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. Now we cover this in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist stealing from God. And a fun way of looking at this problem is to get the book Hollywood heroes, because we talk about this in the context of movies. Okay. In fact, one of the one of, one of the movies, Batman versus Superman, which mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't like. They're like, "Why is Batman fighting Superman?" Well, the reason Batman is fighting Superman is because Lex Luthor is thinks that Superman is the god of of his world, and he's a bad god. Why? Because Superman didn't stop Lex Luthor's father from abusing him as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. So he's saying, "You're a bad god." Well, here's the problem. Notice Lex Luthor is mad at that at Superman at God for not stopping. Lex Luthor's father from abusing Lex Luthor. But you know what Lex Luthor isn't mad about? He's not mad that Superman hasn't stopped Lex Luthor from doing evil to other people. Why is that? Why are we always mad at God for him not stopping evil that other people are doing? But we never say, God, why don't you stop me from doing evil? Why don't you stop me? Okay, we never say that. Where are we saying, God, why don't you stop him? Why don't you stop her? I always ask people, look, If God were to stop evil at midnight tonight, would you still be alive at 1201? I wouldn't be, right? Right. Why does God allow evil? Because he allows free will. Why does he allow free will? So we can love. Without free will, you can't love. The problem is with free will, we can also do evil. But what does God do? He redeems evil. What did God ultimately do about evil? He took evil upon himself in the person of Christ. And one day he's going to quarantine all evil. He's not going to take away free will. He's just going to take all the people who want to continue to do evil and put them in a place called hell so they can't interfere with the people that want to be uh, with Christ and their loved ones in a place called heaven. So uh, evil will ultimately be quarantined Mm. and those that have done evil, which is all of us, won't have their sins punished because if we accept what Christ has done, God has taken Or put the punishment that is due us on him. That's how he can remain just and also justify sinners.
0: Absolutely. It goes back to what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, like a world full of automatons would not be a world worth creating. There's no love in a world like that. And so, and guys, yes, you've got to go out and get I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist to get stealing from God. And in the new book, just another little commercial for Hollywood heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God if you have a a movie, a superhero movie that you like, whether it's Batman versus Superman, you know, whether it's, you know, the Spider-Man stuff or the Harry Potters or, you know, any of the mm-hmm. other, you know, chapters. Iron that are, Man. Are, yeah, yep. Iron mm-hmm. Man, any of the other chapters of that book, they're all stealing from the story of Jesus mm-hmm. from the That's story right. of God. There's so many through points and you do a great job in that book. You and your son, you co-wrote that with you one of your sons and it's it's a great way for you to do that. So guys, it's an accessible book for you as an adult male. It's an accessible book for your teenagers. You can sit down and watch these movies, read the chapter together and then go into some of the deeper level. Like, oh, I didn't realize that that was part of the theme here. But I think that gets into, Frank, one of the other, I guess, dilemmas that you'll run into when you're arguing with atheists and agnostics, when you're arguing from the Bible, people will just say that you know that the bible and what's described in the christian bible is just another myth it's just another mythical story that that was borrowed from other mythical stories that even came before the old mm-hmm. testament and before those types of things and the thing about that frank is for a lot of christians that stops them dead in their tracks they're like yeah, right. wait a minute what there's egyptian stories that are just like the jesus story there you know are other stories like how do you deal with an argument like that well
1: first of all there are no stories just like jesus that came Before Jesus, there are uh, in in Egypt, there was a story about Osiris, but Mm -hmm. Osiris wasn't resurrected into this world. Osiris became some sort of figure in the netherworld. It wasn't a resurrection story. Uh, The stories about dying and rising gods predominantly came after Christianity. Mm. And one of the things that J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series, convinced C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist at the time, is Tolkien said to Lewis, Jack, that's what they called C.S. Lewis, Jack, Jack, you're you're enthralled with these stories, these myths about dying and rising gods. These are stories that came after Christianity. Mm -hmm. But you're not enthralled about reading a dying and rising god in the pages of the New Testament. Why is that? Why are you enthralled with these myths when the true myth The thing that really happened, the story that really happened, Jesus rising from the dead, you're not enthralled with it all. But you know, Jack, that really happened. And Lewis checked into it and realized, wow, there's historical evidence for this. It did really happen. And then he became a Christian and became the top apologist of the 20th century. And so Tolkien said, the true myth is Christianity. It really happened. All these other myths may point to Christianity, but the true myth really happened. That's why so many of these movies we, we, we watch whether it's Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Wonder Woman, Star Wars. These movies are pointing, at least are partially copied from Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the heroes in these movies point to the ultimate hero, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, if you, if you were to ask, what is the, the, the one characteristic that so many of the heroes express in these movies that is consistent with Jesus? They all sacrifice. Absolutely. They all sacrifice themselves for the greater good.
0: And I think that's what- Uh, Sorry to interrupt. That's one of the great things I heard you talk about in another interview, which is like Mm -hmm. you know, spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't seen Endgame. And I'm not a big you know Marvel movie person, but you know, uh, Iron Man gives up his life in order to so that the world could continue. So he gave up his life so that life could continue. And for for him, this is a very selfish kind of playboy billionaire type guy in a real life. You know, I guess a fake version of Elon Musk or something like that. Uh But then he ends up getting to a place where he gives himself up. So even in that story, it's a an incredibly imperfect person that gives himself up and sacrifice, which is very different than Jesus, who was a perfect person. But again, as, as I think you've pointed this out, or maybe it was your son, it's just like, how lame would that story have been if Iron Man had the capability, right, of, of, of ending this, of, of, you know, he basically chose, you know, I could give up my life to save humanity, but man, I really, really like my life. My wife is smoking hot. I've got all these sports cars and all these great helicopters. I can't really do that. That wouldn't have made sense to us. As an audience, no. we would not have bought that. And, you know, the, the movie wouldn't have done as well, because because it wouldn't have been as enthralling of an ending. It wouldn't. It would have been like, oh, all this great stuff to crescendo into a nonsense pile. And so, all that does kind of go to something that I know you've talked about, and you know, our buddy Jay Warner Wallace has talked about in his book, uh, "Person of Interest," and other things like that, is being able to actually trust the Bible. Because whenever Mm. you hear someone, so like, you know, the biggest podcast host on the planet, Joe Rogan, he has said multiple times on his show, man, you can't even like trust the Bible. It's been translated so many different times. We have none of the original (laughs) manuscripts and all those different things. He he gives way to an an incredible level of ignorance on the issue, but he's sitting across from somebody that also agrees with him. And there's tens of millions of people that listen to his podcast that just take that whole cloth. Like, I guess the Bible can't be true because Joe Rogan said so because of all that. And he's not doing it maliciously. He's doing that because he's Ignorant because he's uninformed. But how do you deal with that when people talk about, hey, it's been translated so many times, we don't have the original manuscripts. How could we know this hasn't just been changed by the Council of Nicaea or something like that?
1: Well, the two questions there's two questions there. How do we know what the original said? And then secondly, how do we know the original's telling the truth? All right. Now, to the first question, how do we know what the original said? Everybody agrees we know what the original said. Even skeptics like Bart Ehrman, who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill, who wrote the book Misquoting Jesus, even he admits. That by comparing all the manuscript evidence that we have, uh, which are nearly 6,000 handwritten Greek manuscripts, and there's like another 14,000 from other languages, Mm -hmm. we know what the original said, because we can cross-check all of those manuscripts and reconstruct the original with more than 99.5% accuracy, and the 0.5% we're not exactly sure of has no effect on any theology, right? Mm -hmm. So we know what the original said. So question one, how do we know what the original said? We know what the original said. The the, the more interesting question is, uh, did the original tell the truth? That's really, you know, did Jesus really rise from the dead? So when Rogan or somebody says, well, the Bible's been translated so many times, first of all, translations have nothing to do with it. Okay, translations are going from the original Greek or Hebrew into English. You can go back to the original Greek for the New Testament and the Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic for the Old Testament And you can look at those manuscripts and figure out what the original said. So translations have zip zero nada to do anything with whether or not we know what the original said. Okay, translations are just that. Translations into different languages. Okay, but the question, how do we know that the New Testament writers told the truth? We go through a lot of evidence in the books that they did. Let me just give you a couple of reasons to think they did. And there's about 10 of them in the book. One is. They put embarrassing stories throughout the text they never would have invented. I always ask audiences, um, how many people here have ever lied uh, to make yourself look good? And everybody raises their hands. And those that don't raise their hands, I say, um, if you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying to make yourself look good. Because we know you've done that, right? right? You will lie to make yourself look good, but you will never lie to embarrass yourself. You will never lie to make yourself look bad unless you're a pool shark or something. You know, but you get the idea, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to set somebody up. Most of the time, you will never lie to embarrass yourself. That's why historians know that when they're reading something, that's embarrassing to the author or authors, it's probably true, it probably really happened. And the New Testament writers have filled the New Testament with embarrassing details they never would have made up. For example, they would never depict themselves as dim-witted, they do that routinely. Mm -hmm. They would never have run away at the crucifixion, right? And have the women be the first witnesses. What man is going to make up that he ran away for, for fear of the Jews, why the women were the brave ones who discovered the empty tomb? No man would make that up, right? Mm-hmm. You would never have the women be the first witnesses in that culture because their, their testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. These are not made up. You would never have, have their leader, Peter, deny Christ three times, right? Right. They never would have invented this. They never would have called Jesus a drunkard. They never would have said Jesus was called demon possessed. They never would have had his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. And oh, by the way, they wouldn't have two prostitutes in the Messiah's bloodline, Rahab and Tamar. Mm -hmm. Who would have made this up? This is not a made up story. It's too embarrassing, right? So they're telling the truth about those things. The second reason I know they're telling the truth is they, many of them went and died for it. Who would have died for saying that Jesus had risen from the dead when they had no expectation a man would claim to be God? That was considered blasphemy to the Jews. And they, they wouldn't say a man rose from the dead. They thought there would be a resurrection at the end of time. According to Daniel 12, there would be a resurrection at the end of time, but not in the middle of time. Mm-hmm. So yet here are these Jewish believers in Yahweh who have suddenly changed their worldview completely to say a man claimed to be God and rose from the dead, and they're willing to die for this. Now, who would have done this on a myth? Nobody would have done this on a myth, right? Now, you might say, well, Frank, are you telling me that, uh, that martyrdom improves Christianity? If that's the case, don't you have to say that martyrdom improves Islam? no. Why? There's a big difference between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. The Muslim martyrs of today don't have evidence that Islam is true. They haven't witnessed anything. They just taken on faith that Islam is true. But the New Testament writers who were all Jewish, with the exception of Luke, they're all Jews. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified he had risen from the dead. You see, many people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not. And they went to their deaths anyway. So you can't get better evidence than that unless you were there yourself.
0: Frank, I think that's one of the most compelling things that I don't see a good secular answer to, which is why do we not have any reports of these people recanting what they claimed? Yeah, because to they seen, never did, right? Yeah, like, they and, never did. And again, like there, there has to be some sort of secular historian that just hated Christians and you know, but was but was an honest person somehow and said, yeah, there was this one person that was a disciple for a little bit, and then whenever it became came time for the gallows or for the cross, they decided, no, 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 no all this was fake. We don't see that anywhere. That is such such compelling evidence, and it honest with you, Frank the world is smaller than we've ever recognized. Like we're, we're typically about one degree of separation from everybody. We got to get you on the Joe Rogan experience somehow, because I'm like losing my mind. I'm like pulling my hair out because it's like, he goes and says these things half cocked and goes unchecked on a lot of these things. And that doesn't mean he's all of a sudden going to become, you know, the next Billy Graham and have this major conversion, but he might, but just, I want somebody on that show that could actually give that other side. And this kind of does dovetail into what I wanted to talk about because for years on my show and everywhere that would listen to me, I would say I wanted that person to be Ravi Zacharias. If we could just get Mm. Ravi Mm -hmm. Zacharias on the Joe Rogan experience and have him engage with him, you know, Ravi went on, you know, uh, Ben Shapiro's show and Ben Shapiro's an Orthodox Jew and, oh, that's such a big deal and all those different things. And then obviously everything that we know now about what Ravi was doing while he was still alive has come out. And that would Mm -hmm. have been a disaster area if I had gotten Mm -hmm. my way. And you obviously had an affiliation with Ravi Zacharias. You worked directly with him uh, in certain cases but he's just one of a myriad of very prominent pastors that have fallen to some form of sexual sin. So you've got Carl Lentz and Brian Houston of Hillsong. You got Bill Hybels, you got Ravi, and you just kind of fill in the blanks. So talk to me a little bit about your affiliation with Ravi and, you know, after, after what you learned about him, you know, kind of what that did, how that affected you, did it affect your ministry in any way? But then just, you know, more broadly, what about these prominent pastors that all these people put their faith in and then they fall in such you know direct sexual ways and why that constantly keeps happening
1: i just ask him one question if somebody plays beethoven poorly who do you blame not beethoven yeah you don't blame beethoven you blame the player so if somebody plays christ poorly you don't blame jesus look you blame the person playing jesus and we're all fallen we all have feet of clay. We are all at risk for sin. So when you see someone fall, don't think that this means Christianity's fault. It doesn't. It's just, actually, it's evidence that Christianity true. Why? Because if we weren't fallen, we wouldn't even need a savior. Right. Why we do we would, need Jesus? We wouldn't if even we're know perfect? what
0: fallenness is. Yeah, at that point.
1: that's right. That's right. So there are, yes, there are hypocrites. In fact, when I debated Christopher Hitchens and, you know, I was saying, you know, Christopher, a lot of what you have in your book, Uh, Is true that religious people have done evil things. Uh, I agree with that. But you're sort of proving our worldview. Why? Because if we hadn't done evil things, we wouldn't need a savior. We wouldn't need Jesus. And I said, look, Christopher, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to what Jesus told me to live up to. But if I could, I wouldn't need him. And when people tell me I can't go to church because there's too many hypocrites down there, I always say, come on down, pal. We got room for one more. Yeah we're all hypocrites. We're all fallen. We all need a savior. Now, I try and live by what the Billy Graham manifesto, Modesto manifesto was. Have you ever heard of that, uh, Kyle? Modesto manifesto?
0: I haven't heard that terminology. Is that just kind of how he dealt with women in public? Yeah. Modesto
1: manifesto was back in the late forties. He and his team were in Modesto, California, and they said, look, there are three things that can get any of us in trouble. And this is true that Jay Warner Wallace probably told you the same thing when you had him on the program. Yeah. When he finds a dead body, he's a detective, right? Mm-hmm. If he finds a murdered body, he knows that that guy has been murdered for one of three reasons or a combination of these three. Not a thousand reasons, just one one or more of these three. There was either a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue, sex, money, or power. Those are the three things that can cause people to murder. There are also the three things that can influence any of us to sin. Why? Because sex, money, and power are good things, but they're so good that we'll sometimes take shortcuts to get them. That's what we'll do. We'll take shortcuts to get these things. And so we need to protect ourselves from being, t- from being tempted by sex, money, and power or, or power. So what the Modesto Manifesto was is Billy Graham and his team came together and said, we gotta protect ourselves from temptation. So number one, we are never gonna be in the presence of another woman who's not our wives alone. Okay, we can be in the presence of other women with other people, that's mm-hmm. fine, but never alone in a room with someone who's not our, our wife, you know, unless it's, you know, your mother, you get the idea, right? right? right. Someone related to you is fine, okay. So, we want to protect ourselves from sexual temptation. Number two, we are never going to handle the money. Okay. Other people are going to handle the money. We're not in it for the money. We don't want to be caught with money. Uh, any donations go right to the ministry, they're not going to us personally. Okay. And number three, a power can also go to our head. So, we are never going to say so many people were saved. Mm. Um, we're going to go with what the Uh, We might say this is how many people came forward, but we're never going to exaggerate those numbers. We're never going to exaggerate the numbers of people that came. We're going to go with whatever the police said. If the police said there were 10,000 people there, that's what we'll say. Okay, so we're going to protect ourselves on those three fronts now. Throughout BGEA, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, which has been around for probably about 70 years now, have you ever heard of any sexual money or power scandal?
0: No, haven't.
1: No, why? Because they try and live by the Modesto Manifesto with the Lord's help. I think we all need to put those boundaries around us. Obviously, Robbie didn't do that. Okay, now I didn't know Robbie very well. and you may say said I've worked directly with him. The only thing that Robbie and I ever did together was I asked him to put the forward on our book, Stealing from God, which right. he did. He was gracious enough to do that. And he and I were once on the stage together answering questions in a and a format. That's it. Um, and so when I all this stuff came out about Ravi, I was shocked just like anybody else, but it didn't waver my faith at all. In right. fact, it just showed me that we're all fallen and we all need a savior. And it seemed to me that what, what, what got to Ravi's head was he thought he was above reproach. He didn't have to put any of those Modesto manifesto, uh, accountability devices in his life. He just decided he can handle it and he fell. And of yeah. course, any of us could fall. Absolutely. You gotta put those things in your life,
0: though. I, I think two important lessons. Number one, you have to put those guardrails in your life mm-hmm. for yourself. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is never put your faith in a man. And you would yeah. include yourself yeah. in that. I that's include right. myself in that. I was like, guys, yes. please don't worship on Daunted Life A Man's podcast. Yeah. Please don't do that. I'm yeah. not that good like at any yeah. of this. And and you know, cro- don't worship cross examined. Don't right. worship Frank Turk. But like that's the thing is when you have these people have these attacks of faith, when they realize that Carl Lentz was a sexual deviant or that. Robbie Zacharias was a sexual deviant. It's like, if you got saved, if you came to faith in Christ at a Robbie Zacharias event and Robbie Zacharias is an unrepentant, crazy sinner, that doesn't mean that your faith individually is in vain. Now, Frank, I feel like we could talk for the next like three or four hours, but we both got stuff to do. So we got to go to the very, Mm -hmm. very end here. I like to do a segment towards the end of my show and I think you're going to be great at it. It's called, what would you say to someone that said? And so I'm going to say that. What would you say to someone that said? And then I'm going to fill in the blank, but here's the deal. It's lightning round. So you get 30 seconds maximum to give me an answer, regardless of how big or small the topic is. So what would you say to someone that said, are you up for it? Go. All right, let's do the first one. What would you say to someone that said, I can't figure out how to convince my friend to become a Christian?
1: Uh, First thing I'd say is, what do you mean by that? And where is your friend now? Okay. What does he already believe? Ask him questions. Why do you think that's true? See, when somebody says something, it's not your job to refute what they say. It's their job to support what they say. So I would I would get them my friend uh, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, because these are Great questions book. you should ask. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that atheism's true? Why do you think anything's true? What right. evidence do you have for that? That's what I would ask them.
0: The Colombo Method, uh, Tactics yeah. is a fantastic book. All right, next one right. here. What would you say to someone that said, why does Frank yell so much?
1: Because I'm from New Jersey.
0: <laughs> we all knew the answer to that one before you even said it. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, all Jews are going to hell?
1: All people are going to hell if they haven't accepted Christ. So not all Jews are going to hell because some Jews accept Jesus. In fact, Paul even says in Romans 11, a disputed passage, all Israel will be saved. Who is all Israel? I think all Israel are those that put their trust in the Messiah. That's the true Israel, okay? Okay. So everyone's going to hell without Jesus. Why? Because we're all sinners. So we need a savior and he's our savior.
0: All right. Next rapid fire question here. What would you say to someone that said all Catholics are going to hell?
1: Uh, You can't say that because, well, first of all, let's go back to Jews for a second. Some Jews are believing in Jesus. So Mm -hmm. not all Jews are going to hell. Some Catholics are believing in Jesus. In fact, a lot of people, I was brought up Catholic. I know what the Catholic church is about. I'm not a Catholic now. I'm a Protestant, but I speak mostly at Protestant churches. And sometimes I get questions from Protestants saying, do you think Catholics can be saved? And I always say, I even think some Baptists can be saved, (laughs) right? Because it's not where you go to church that saves you. It's whether or not you've accepted the free gift of salvation. Now, some Catholics have accepted that. Many have not. And let me just say this. I've been to hundreds of masses in my life, and I never, ever heard the gospel at a mass until my father's funeral, when the priest said, I talked to Frank, he's accepted Jesus as his savior, so he's on his way to heaven. Wow! That priest understood the gospel. But up to that point, I had never heard it. Now, again, I'm not saying Catholics can't be saved, but in my experience, I have not seen the Catholic church be really clear about the gospel.
0: Well, that's just fodder for our next conversation. So I'd love mm-hmm. to talk more about that, mm-hmm. but we got we to gotta ask these last few here. So what mm-hmm. would you say to someone that said a loving God couldn't possibly send anyone to hell?
1: Uh, that's not true. A loving God judges sin because if you don't judge sin, you're not loving. Miroslav Volf, who was a uh, who is now teaches at Yale University, but early on in his life, I think he's from originally Czechoslovakia or somewhere. He said, I can't believe in a God that would judge people. Uh, But then when he saw uh, the fruits of the, I think he's actually from Serbia, uh, there was a war that went on where he saw many people murdered and Mm -hmm. raped. Mm -hmm. And after that, he said, I can't believe in a God that wouldn't judge sin. How how can you believe in a God that wouldn't right all wrongs? You have to right all wrongs. That's what justice is. And that's what God does.
0: Yeah. Social justice comes from the idea that you don't believe in cosmic justice. Mm -hmm. All right. Next Mm -hmm. one here. What would you say to someone that said, I'm okay with God but not the church.
1: Uh, I could agree with you uh, because the church is full of sinners. And as I said earlier, uh, if Be- if someone plays Beethoven poorly, you don't blame Beethoven. Okay. So yes, I think the church is flawed, but the church is God's organization on earth. The group of believers who are there to make disciples and to try and make disciples of all nations. So even though it's flawed, Um, it still is God's means of achieving his kingdom of bringing more people into his kingdom. So, uh, you shouldn't expect it to be perfect. It's full of flawed people like the rest of us, but it's still God's way of getting things done here on earth. He gives us the dignity of causality to actually affect time and eternity through what we do here on earth.
0: All right. Just a few more left. What would you say to someone that said, believing in a young earth is silly.
1: Well, I think Christians, when people ask, you know, how old is the earth? They always say I'm absolutely convinced it's, a, it's at least 60 years old. OK, all right. I <laughs> throw my mom in there. It's at least 84. OK, Christians argue over this. I think the evidence is better that it's old. But no matter which view you take, you have to make assumptions you can't prove like speed of the light from the stars If the speed of light hasn't changed, the earth appear or the universe appears to be 13.8 billion years old. If the speed of light has changed by that dating method, we don't know how old the earth is or the universe is. But is it a good assumption to say the universe or the speed of light hasn't changed? The answer, yeah, it's probably a good assumption. Why? Because if you change the speed of light, you got to change all the other laws of physics with it. Right. So the universe appears to be old, but I don't care how old it is really tell you the truth because you need a creator no matter how far back you go. And if you want to ask a question about Genesis, what it means we can, but
0: Well, that's the thing. I think one day in heaven, we'll clink our glasses together and say, oh, Johnny was right, or oh, Tim was right. right. I don't think it really matters. All right, a couple left and we'll get you out of here. What would you say to someone that said, we can't believe in the entire Bible because many of the stories have no historical or archeological evidence supporting them?
1: Well, you can't prove everything in the Bible, just like you can't prove anything, everything in any historical work. You can't prove it. You can't prove uh, uh, that everything in a book About World War II occurred either. Mm -hmm. All you can do is go on what the eyewitnesses have said, okay? So just because you can't confirm everything with archaeology doesn't mean it didn't happen. And the reason I believe the entire Bible is true is because Jesus did. And I just have a personal policy. If somebody Dies, first of all, predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead. I just trust whatever the guy says because he's validated his claim to be God. And we have enough historical evidence to know that the things Jesus said about the Bible really happened. So we're not using the Bible to prove the Bible. We're using the Bible documents, the New Testament documents, as historical documents to see if we have good evidence to believe. That what went on in those documents actually did go on, and I think we have good evidence for that. That's what we cover, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist.
0: Hey, we can't even fully prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, but I don't hear Joe Joe Rogan talking about how we don't even know if Mm -hmm. Julius Caesar existed. All right, last Mm -hmm. question of the day. What would you say to someone that said, no matter what you say, Frank, I'll never believe in God?
1: Well, I will say then that's, that's a, uh, a volitional problem, not a head problem. You have a heart problem, not a head problem. This is why I always ask people, particularly uh, atheists on college campuses, when they get up to the Q&A mic, if they express any hostility, I'll normally stop and ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And some of them will say no. And then I'll say, well, why? Why wouldn't you believe something if it were true? That's, that's not reasonable, right? Well, of course it has nothing to do with reason. It's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. They don't want it to be true. They don't want God to exist, why? Because they wanna be God of their own lives. Mm-hmm. They're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest and they're just gonna believe whatever they think is gonna make them happy. Here's the problem, you can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun things but over the long term, it's a disaster. And anyone listening to us right now, Kyle, who's over 40, knows what we're talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves. Now, you just can't live any way you want without consequence if the only way to get true contentment is to go straight through truth and Jesus is the truth so always ask people the question if Christianity were true would you become a Christian if they hesitate or say no the problem's not a head problem it's a heart problem
0: and then it's pearls before swine at that point and also right. asking that question and in addition say hey if you were wrong would you want to know because some yeah. people don't they love no. the blissful ignorance that they live in but Frank I gotta tell you this was a great conversation I really really enjoyed it guys go get his books they're in the show notes make sure you're subscribed to YouTube and everything. And we're going to get into all that later. But as for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest?
1: No, just check out crossexamined.org. Check out our podcast. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's once a week, 48 minutes. We also have a TV program. All that you can see at crossexamined.org. We have an app as well, two words in the app store, crossexamined. You can see the TV show streaming there, there, the podcast there. And uh, as you mentioned, those books you'll put in the uh, show notes. So-
0: It'll all be there, guys. Check it out. Pick it up. Frank Turk, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast.
1: Thanks, Kyle. Great being with you.
0: There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Frank Turk. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Frank's cross examined website, and that will get you to his blog, his podcast, his YouTube channel, and all that. I've got a link to his Amazon page where you can pick up his books. I've got a link specifically to the cross examined YouTube channel, and then a very specific YouTube video. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, live from U of Texas. So this was a presentation i believe he gave in 2021 which you know it's like three hours so he does a bunch of q a but then he gets into a lot of the higher points of his books all right guys thanks so much for listening to the show we do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this please subscribe rate and leave us a positive five-star review if you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life that's info at undaunted.life Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook, and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.